Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Brian. I am uh, one of the pastors here um, at Metro. And um, if it's your first time here um, or if you're visiting, we're so glad that you're here to worship with us. And um, past few weeks, um, we've been going through our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if you guys uh, aren't familiar, the Sermon on the Mount is um, Jesus and his teachings, probably considered to be one of the most comprehensive teachings we see in Scripture. And essentially, he's focusing on the kingdom. And in light of the kingdom, what it means to live a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered life in light of a future hope. And so if you have your Bibles with me and turn to page 8 with me in your programs, I want to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's ta taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. Now, when I was uh, 16 years old, uh, I remember... Um, my parents provided me with uh, my first car. It was a red 1999 Honda Passport. Now, you can imagine the excitement that I had. And I remember getting this license, getting this new car. I would drive everyone and everywhere. And I did this for quite some time. But in my excitement and in my youth, I forgot some essentials that were important for the car. And I shamefully admit that in light of ignorant adolescence, the one thing I never did during my time with this Honda Passport was I never got an oil change. So what happens is maybe after probably a half year of, of driving, um, I would essentially drive over the recommended 3,000 mile mark for an oil change. And one day, the engine would stall essentially meaning that that car engine stalled and essentially I would have to replace that entire engine. And see, I come to realize that in that moment, if I just come to the realization that the car that I was driving, it needed basic maintenance and repair. And if I just did some basic maintenance, if I just focused on the repairs that it needed to be done, I would have simply avoided the headache. If I was just a bit more intentional, a bit more mindful, I would do everything that I could to routinely maintain and repair the car to avoid the headaches of losing time, trust, and even thousands of dollars. Here in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus, too, is talking about the importance of maintenance and repair. Specifically, he's referring to our relationships. And it simply leads us to the question this morning, that in light of the Christian faith, how mindful and how intentional are you in terms of the routine maintenance and repair that is required with relationships that God has placed within your life? This morning, the main point of today's message is this. Human relationships constantly need to be reconciled. And how reconciliation unfolds within our relationships is going to be based on how you understand the reconciliation we have with God because of the Son, Jesus Christ. I have three points for us this morning as we dive into today's text. The need for reconciliation, the power for reconciliation, and finally, the components of reconciliation, the need, the power, and the components. Let's dive into our first point is the need for reconciliation. Now, just to be very clear, Jesus in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, his primary argument is the importance of relationship repair, and he specifically uses the word reconcile. The word reconcile, it simply means to, to return the relationship to a state of peace and even intimacy. So when you look at verse 24, Jesus says, first, go and be reconciled to your brother. In verse 25, he expands and he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. And I think that tells us something about relationships in general that relationships as a whole are extremely, extremely difficult. There's miscommunication, there is misunderstanding, and it often leads to the hurting of one another. And because of this simple fact, there needs to be maintenance. There needs to be repairing. And within the context of relationship, it means that there needs to be a constant proactiveness of reconciliation. And if you think about that, it's actually very different from what our society tells us. Statistics show that will be the case. Then recent studies of marriage and divorce, almost 50% ends in divorce. A sad reality due to the lack of need for reconciliation. And the question becomes, why is it that so many relationships today go beyond repair? Why is it that so many relationships come to a point that it says it is too broken to fix? Look at verse 21 and 22 with me. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. See, Jesus is essentially saying that, yes, everybody agrees you shouldn't kill. Murder is clearly wrong. But as Jesus dives into verse 21 and 22, he's kind of going deeper. He's saying, yes, that act is horrific. But if you dive just a little bit deeper into the depths of your heart, what is just as horrific is the root of the heart that desires murder. See, it's easy just to see the outer responses as evil. 
But any person that thinks a little bit deeper, that's a little bit more in tune with the heart, always understands that the tragedy is not just the murder. The tragedy is never just to act alone. The real tragedy is the heart inclination that led to the murder. And it's the very heart, it's this very broken heart that would cause the brokenness and discord in our lives and the lives of others. If I can explain. One of my guilty pleasures right now is, uh, been, has been Netflix documentaries, um, specifically about murder and serial killers. Now, before you respond with genuine concern for me, uh, before you respond if you should be praying for me, yes to both, but I do have a point track with me. See, when you watch these documentaries about murders and serial killers, they kind of have a similar theme. They have something very in common. It always starts off with this horrific act of violence, hatred, and loss. But as you kind of go through the documentary, what becomes so interesting and engaging, it, it kind of goes uh, deeper and it kind of focuses on why these horrific acts actually happen. So they begin to look at the person's psyche, their upbringings, the heart conditions that would essentially play that huge role in terms of what led to the horrific act. In other words, uh, these documentaries, they typically unfold the heart motives of the acts, and it always kind of goes to the question of, well, what if the heart was addressed before the attack? See, here in verse 21 and 22, Jesus Christ is simply laying out a documentary framework on why horrific acts like murder actually happen. And in the context of this passage, Jesus Christ is simply laying out a documentary framework on why relationships break. And it is because of the natural heart, its desires to not proactively pursue because of our self-absorption. And here Jesus says that if you are one of my followers, don't fall into the self-deception of how righteous you are just because you didn't murder. For the heart is capable of doing murderous things if the right amount of heat is applied. So in verse 22, he dives deeper. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Now, when you see the word raka, it's an Aramaic term meaning contempt or worthlessness. And here Jesus is simply emphasizing this point. What is it that leads to these acts of murder? What is it that makes it possible for someone to be angry and resentful towards other people? It's not just an outward act, but it's the inward heart that says raka. It's kind of like you and I, we may not see uh, the eyes being rolled, but you know in the hearts that that is what it's essentially doing. Jesus' point is this, how much of that eye rolling actually becomes murder? How much of that eye rolling becomes violence? And Jesus is saying it's all of it because all of those responses are coming from the natural heart. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Best way to look at it is think about the heart as a boiling pot of water filled at the very top. If you don't address this heart with an over-flooding, cool flood of grace to overtake this boiling pot of water, not only will this anger boil over and you'll burn yourself every time the circumstances pushes you, but that boiling anger will also burn the people that God has intimately placed within your life. So here, Jesus is acknowledging to the believer, to the one that is angry, to consider what this anger is doing, how it's burning you, and how it's burning the people that are surrounding you. And it leads us to the question for us this morning. In what ways are you allowing your anger to spill over to the people that are closest to you? In what ways is your heart creating discord amongst the people that surround you? See, there is always a need for reconciliation because by nature we break things. So we need a supernatural power that brings reconciliation. And it leads us to our second point, the power for reconciliation. Read verse 23 and 24 with me. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. See, as we continue into this passage, Jesus Christ, now he gives us this illustration that probably gets lost on us. So let's unpack this just for a little bit. See, the altar that Jesus is referring to, it's not like the churches that you see today in the, in the city of Philadelphia. You know, today when you look in the city of Philadelphia, there's churches and synagogues and altars in every corner. But in Israel, there's only one altar, which was in the temple of Jerusalem. Meaning, to go to the altar, essentially it meant that you had to travel for days. It was something that didn't happen often. And Jesus in this illustration is saying this, it doesn't matter how far you are. It doesn't matter how much you traveled. It doesn't even matter how good your offering actually was. If you realize that there is a relationship with someone that's unraveling, you need to go and reconcile, meaning Reconciliation is not meant to be taken lightly. It's a command. For us, it means it doesn't matter how inconvenient it is for you. It doesn't matter how difficult the conversation is going to be. You must constantly keep those relationships in good standing and in repair. You've got to undermine the tendencies of the human heart that leads to relational brokenness. And if I can say it this way, if you are a Christian in this room and you proclaim the faith that you found in Jesus Christ, you are called to go against your self-desires to not do anything but in conviction, you are called to do everything for the sake of reconciliation with the brother and the sister that is sitting next to you. Yes, it does take much work. And that is exactly the point that Jesus is illustrating for us. 
Jesus is telling us, he's referring to someone that traveled days to get to the altar. But if there needs to be reconciliation, that brother has to go back and then go forward again to do what he was originally meant to do. Yes, it takes a lot of time. Yes, there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations. Yes, there's a lot of emotions and tears. And then the question simply becomes for us, if that is the case, and I believe that is true, then where does that power come from? What will convict you and I to be so intentional within this idea of reconciliation? Well, brothers and sisters, look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ demonstrated for us what it means for us to seek reconciliation as he would go so far that he would became flesh, that he became sin who knew no sin, to absorb the wrath of God, to reconcile us with God the Father. That his experience to reconcile us with God were nails to the cross. And when we reflect on his experience to reconcile us with God, may it humble you to do what God does in light of the relationships that he has called us to, to seek forgiveness from others when called to. And at the same time, that when we reflect on Jesus' experience to reconcile us, that it would empower you to come in repentance towards others. See, Jesus Christ, he experienced a pain far worse than any difficulty you will go through in order to repair any human relationship. And if you and I believe that, that you see and you proclaim what the Apostle Paul says that we are in him, is that in him you most certainly have the power to seek the reconciliation that he originally has shown us. See, let the gospel be the power to move you towards reconciliation with others. Consider the reconciliation that you were once dead and you are now brought to life. And let that be the power to seek dead and broken relationships come into new life. So how does this reconciliation play out for us today? It leads us to our third point is the components of reconciliation. Now, there are two main components in terms of reconciliation between two parties. First is repentance. Secondly, it's forgiveness. So first, let's talk about repentance for a little bit. It's a word that you often hear you know, often you hear in light of, you know, Bible language and Christian, but what do we mean by repentance? In the New Testament, the key term for repentance, it has uh, two definitions. First, it's usually regret, remorse, and secondly, it's a change of mind, right? There's remorse and then a change of mind. See, what repentance essentially is in light of that is taking full responsibility for what you have done. But to add a caveat to that is that there are no excuses at all. What does that mean? It means practically that there is no blame shifting. Even if that person 
had 90% fault. That 90% of the issue was because of the other person. What real repentance is, is you coming in with your 10%. And in that 10%, you are admitting, you aren't making any excuses, and you are simply saying to that person, I'm going to swallow my pride a little bit. Here is my 10%. And in light of this 10%, this is what I've done wrong. This is how it has impacted our relationship. And I come to you in repentance. Right? Repentance is, is full responsibility for what you've done wrong. No excuses at all. What does that look like practically on a, on a side note? Simply never say but. Right? When you're talking to the person, you're coming forward in repentance because there's some brokenness in the relationship. You come to your 10%. But I would advise and encourage not to say, but you did 90 of it. It doesn't work that way. It's not going to fly. Because what repentance is, is, is a full responsibility. And then it comes to the question of the heart. Are you really, really repentant of what has been happening in terms of your 10%? See, there, there's no blame shifting. Secondly, in light of that, uh, it means that you're offering to make changes, right? Uh, in the Hebrew, when you see the word repentance, um, the, the root word in the Hebrew is shuv. And the actual term, the actual definition of shuv is to turn around, is to literally turn, right? What that means for us is this, is that when you come in repentance, it means you're willing to say, look, this has happened I see my 10%. I don't want this 10% to happen again. What can I do to make a change? And if you're really humble, you can say, what can I do? How can you help me to make a change? Right? It's turning around, right? You can't just say, sorry, my bad. Right? You do that when you step on someone's shoes. Right? You, you do that when you spill some coffee on somebody. Right? Real deep-rooted repentance is saying, forgive me for I have wronged you. Put a little Bible language, I have sinned against you. What can I do to change? What can I do to seek reconciliation within what we're doing right now? Right? What does that mean? Practically, never just say sorry, right? Don't just say my bad, right? Go deeper. You seek repentance. You ask for forgiveness. Here is my 10%. I want to do everything that I can by the grace of God to turn things around for the sake of reconciliation. Repentance. Second component in terms of reconciliation is actually pertaining to the other person, and that is forgiveness, right? Now, what is forgiveness? Tim Keller, uh, a well-known pastor, author in New York, he says it beautifully, and I'm going to read it to us. Uh, forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. 
you not only suffer the original loss of happiness, but now you forgo the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt. So the reason why uh, uh, forgiveness is so difficult right, is because they probably, the other person probably did something that was wrong and probably something that was against you, meaning by nature it probably deserves some type of punishment. So you, by forgiving them, it actually brings the affliction upon yourself. All of those desires that you want against that person because that person did something to you by saying, I forgive you, you're saying, I'm not going to put those thoughts upon you, but in other words, I'm going to put those thoughts and those feelings upon myself. Essentially, it's affliction upon yourself. It's painful because you're absorbing the debt that the other person deserves. It's all about absorbing the debt. If I can explain, a few years ago, uh, there was this uh, shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine people, a small local church, were killed by this younger male named Dylan Roof. It's an act of uh, violence, hatred, and racism. Uh, nine lives were taken away by one man's hatred. And it was on a Bible study. It was like a prayer night guy just comes in and just takes away nine lives, right? But what was so powerful was that a week later, there's this video of the families that would confront Dylan Roof, and all of their responses were forgiveness. There's one, uh, uh, one sentence in particular from the one lady that I, I would never forget when I saw it. She said, you took something precious from me. I will never speak to them again, but I forgive you. Do you think in that moment that the family felt forgiveness? They were face to face with a racist that murdered their loved ones. And she says, I forgive you. This is true forgiveness. It was never asked, but it was simply granted. Forgiveness is granted before it is felt. Forgiveness is granted before it is felt. If you want to feel forgiveness, you will never forgive. See, forgiveness is a declaration, it's a commitment in prayer that you would submit your thoughts and your feelings to the Lord. And in reality, when we come into play uh, of reconciliation, you are actually being more Christ-like than you could ever imagine. Because if you look at Christ on the cross, it represents forgiveness. So it is how we do life and see the life with the people that are surrounding us. See, be reminded of Jesus in all that we do for the sake of reconciliation. Let the love of Jesus Christ humble you with a repentant heart to someone that you have sinned against. And at the same time, let the love of Christ empower you to seek forgiveness because you have forgiveness experienced in Christ 
Jesus. See, if you're in this room and you proclaim faith, and you believe that you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, we are caught, we are responsible to do the same and likewise. But let me say this on actually a side note. Live with the notion of reconciliation, um, but it does not mean that reconciliation always happens, right? Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, uh, be at peace with all men, right? Meaning our call, right, is reconciliation. We're called to pursue it, um, but the reality is it doesn't mean it's always going to happen, I mean, look at Jesus. He took every step, uh, he took every right to just kind of fight for reconciliation, but not everyone becomes reconciled with him, right? And it leads us to the question as we begin to kind of land our plane. Who do you need to reconcile with right now? In this moment, in this room, who will you seek out? in light of repentance for the sake of reconciliation. You know, my prayer this afternoon is simply this. Is that the lunches that you have immediately after service will be very, very uncomfortable. Meaning that there's going to be a greater conviction not to be just intentional with your time and not just say, I want to meet with this person, but you'll dive deeper and you'll move towards maintenance, repair, and reconciliation. Listen, if you understand the importance of relationships because you have a biblical worldview on relationships, prayerfully consider to grow within them, to reconcile, to repair. For we believe that our reconciliation is found in the one who infinitely repairs. Jesus Christ. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me?